now I'm just like, holy, I was like very financially that that actually was a burden that like impacted the the relationships that I was able to have as a ski racer, which was sad. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery. I'm your host, Erin Milzinski, a multiple time Olympian. Skiing started as my first love and quickly became my greatest teacher. This podcast is meant to take a deep dive behind the capes of our everyday superheroes and find out what's under the brave spirits, the fearless feats, and the nerves of steel. It's normal to feel fear. Hardships lurk around every corner. And yet these roadblocks can be met with a challenger's mindset and turned into wonderful gifts. It's time to celebrate imperfections, to build bravery from setbacks, and to take our goals to the next level. So let's dive right in. Welcome back to Unspoken Bravery. I am so excited today to reconnect with an old teammate. And we were together for my formative years, and we went to the Sochi Olympic Games together. Ellie Turwheel is joining us today, and she is from Some Peaks, BC. She's also the first athlete on the Canadian team to compete on the World Cup while simultaneously pursuing a degree and racing NCAA. And so she graduated from the University of Vermont with a degree in civil engineering. And she also has a master's of management in innovation and entrepreneurship from Queen's University. She loves to ski, which if you check out her Instagram, there's some really cool videos there. But when she's not skiing, I'm going to read this part because it's complicated. She's helping develop negative embodied carbon building products and designing low carbon buildings. And this is all in Berkeley, California at the moment she's home and she's at the house that she designed for her parents, which is so cool to see that come to life. I'm so excited to talk to her for you to hear this interview. So let's get started. Welcome Ellie Turwheel to Unspoken Bravery. Hello. (laughs) Hi, we've been, we were teammates for many years. Can you walk us through your ski career? So I came up through the British Columbia ski scene, um, was on the British Columbia ski team and then made it onto the development team. I want to say in 2007, where we had a pretty large team of girls who went through the year after that. I was joined by you on the team in Brit, um, as well as many other people. Uh, so I was on the national team for, I think, three years until I, I blew my knee when I was 19. And then was back on the national team for a year and then kind of was off of it and independent for two years and then came back onto the national team again. I was lucky enough to go to the 2014 Olympics with you and had some top 30 World Cup results and uh, raced on the NCAA circuit with the University of Vermont. And uh, we won NCAA championships, which was pretty cool. And I think that about sums it up. (laughs) Yeah. And you were second in Maribor for the second run. Yeah. And 11th in... Uh, 11th and Lavi. Yeah. I remember that race. We're like, let's go. And it was the, this like November before the Olympics. So it's like right when you want to start showing it so that you're performing and you're making criteria and you're, that was cool. Yeah. I was, I was pretty stoked on that. Um, I got a concussion right after that race, uh, right before the next race, actually (laughs) literally like 30 minutes before. Um, so that was kind of bad timing, but I was like, that was, that was, Probably Levy was my career highlight in in just how I felt beforehand and like how I felt afterwards. And 
Yeah, that was great. You can relive it. I can't remember where you got your concussion. The my fourth concussion was uh, the warm up course at the top of Courchevel right before the race. I do remember. I do remember mm-hmm. now. <clears throat> the second gate of a hairpin was out, and I uh, hit the rut that it created and hit my head and didn't want to make a big deal of it, so I didn't say anything <laughs> until really after my race, and I was like, I feel kind of weird. Yeah, we were kind of at the beginning of concussion protocol, and after your fourth, it's like protocol is totally, it should be taken so seriously, but it is, you don't want to make a big deal about it. You're like, oh, did I hit my head? I don't know. Do I feel funny? So yeah, Jay even asked me, he's like, Ellie, what date is it? I was like, don't even joke it, Jay. I know what date it is. (laughs) Um, And in your head, you're like, do I know? (laughs) I don't I think I'm fine. I just remember for me, that concussion, I just immediately started bawling my eyes out and was like, I'm totally fine. I have no idea why I'm crying, but I'm totally fine. And like our, our physio watched me ski down and she thought that I looked good. Like, so we thought I was fine and it just wasn't, but yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> part of skiing, part of, I mean, you're lucky if you get away without a concussion, but okay. So what have you been doing since your ski career? Cause you graduated with a engineering degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I was actually the first of our, I think it was the first women, woman on the Canadian ski team to go to school and be on the national team at the same time. Yeah. We're going to get um, to and, that. I'm so excited about uh, that. <laughs> and then, uh, so I took a year off when I went to the Olympics and then when I retired, I went basically back and raced one more year of NCAA and finished my civil engineering degree. After my civil engineering degree was done, I went and worked in Boston for a year at a construction management firm, which was a very different experience. <laughs> um, and I now work as a structural engineer uh, in Berkeley, California, working specifically on low embodied carbon buildings. And, um, you know, when you are an athlete who's on glaciers every year and you see how much they change, it gets smaller, it has a big impact. And I thought that, you know, being in engineering and specifically in the construction, um, you know, building side of it, I can make a bigger impact by working on buildings that reduce the impact on the climate. That's huge. So That's huge. And then I also, as a kind of a pet project, did the architecture and design of my parents' house, something that I've been dreaming about since I was about three, um, which is where I'm currently sitting. (laughs) So how long did it take you to see your design come to life? Like, did you just came home and you've been home for a little while, but since it was finished to seeing it, was it a little while? It was kind of an interesting process. So I because I designed it in a three day, 3D architecture program, I knew exactly what it looked like, like intimately familiar with the details. And so people would, when I got here, I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly what it's, that's the way it should look. That's exactly as it looks. And so it was kind of an interesting thing because people was like, oh, does it look the way you think it did? I'm like, yeah, because I designed it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. That's so So, cool. I love that. And it's so cool to be part of the environment too. Like even yesterday, we're going to leave in our bus soon. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to get stuff for the toilet to help it compost and there's coconut coir or there's peat moss but peat moss is from bogs and we love moose and moose live in bogs and so coconut coir is a better environmental choice but it's pretty funny that it can hit every part but you're making such a bigger difference because of the work you're doing than not just choosing what your compost is made out of every little bit helps man (laughs) i hope so Um, yeah i think it's been it's been a really interesting journey because we do a lot of work with like uh, natural materials that aren't necessarily always in building codes. And so a lot of the work that we do at the firm that I work at is actually getting these 
actually fairly traditional building materials back into building codes and looking at like the strength design and the structural testing and stuff like that that you need to do to prove that they're actually safe enough to be used. And then you kind of, it's kind of interesting because you're like, well, actually buildings in like Morocco and Southern Spain are made out of this and they're still standing after like 300 years. So true. True. they probably are just fine. I totally agree. And so the first thing I want to jump into is one thing we both wanted to talk about. And I kind of, as I told you, want it to be kind of a conversation. We can just say whatever, ask questions to each other and just build on of our, off of our experiences. But one thing we both wanted to talk about is the importance of teammates. And you've had a lot of teammates because NCAA, that's an experience I never had having that kind of teammate where you're working together so much as a team. And then obviously on the national team, we were individuals traveling as a team, working as a team, but individual sport. But just can we stop for a moment and talk about the importance of teammates? Yeah. So there's, I think, you know, it's one of those things, they're an underrated resource while you have them. When I retired or like, even when I blew my knee, it was amazing. Like when you're removed from your environment of your teammates, how much of a support network they are. Like you're, they're your friends, your sister, your sometimes your arch nemesis, like all of those things. It's just like a family kind of environment. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where in retirement, I've really recognized that the people that I met and spent time with and bonded with when I was on the national team are like the, the depth of those relationships is so much greater than what you can obtain just from like a working relationship or a casual friend, like the, the depth of emotion that you experience with each other as an athlete with teammates is, is kind of wild. Um, and then with NCAA, it was such a wonderful experience to like, not just cheer for your teammate, but cheer from like the depths of your soul, because it's not, it's, it's like, it's a different experience when it's like the, the person that you're with is, or, or they're, you are so much more wrapped up in their performance and, 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 you know, celebrating as a team and, and that sort of thing was like a really, really wonderful secondary experience and, and really actually reinvigorated me to the sport, I think. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that from people. And do you think, because you live together and do everything together with a national team that those relationships follow you more in retirement or it's kind of the same? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I think it would depend. I didn't live with any of my NCAA teammates, but I know a lot of other people did. So they might have like a slightly different uh, recollection of, or, you know, like experience than what I had. I was like, went in at 22 and was like, I am not living in a dorm room. I've been living in a hotel for years. I want to live in a house. And so I didn't have necessarily that same experience, but I, I think that on the national team was a little bit richer for me because of living together. And like, I also just a little bit higher highs and lower lows. The one thing that sticks out to me is actually when I blew my knee, you know, like the kind of support that kind of came from everybody when I was still in pit stall, down that glacier. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> so when I was there though, like the amount of, you know, just support from everybody who was, you know, watching me go through this kind of traumatic, getting needles in my stomach every day, oh my gosh. stuff that I really hated, it was great. And, um, you know, it was, it was something that, you know, the, the levity that um, my teammates were able to bring to the situation and kind of like lift me up and kind of still make it so that I was able to participate in conversations. And, and it wasn't just about, it kind of like left it, lifted me out of my situation a little bit, which I thought was really important at the time. And 
Yeah. I just got a like a visual of us doing that <laughs> dance on the top of the hotel at Pittsville. And I'm pretty sure you were on crutches doing the dance I with was. us. I haven't thought yeah. about that in years. So this is going to be so much fun. I was thinking about so many things today, like how hard we worked in the summer. We worked so hard, like two, three sessions a day. Remember when we lived in the dorm rooms too, in Calgary. And all we did oh. was work out and go back to the dorm mm-hmm. room, which was kind of in the basement. The second year we oh. were up top yeah. for the second time. But just with the four of us, you, me, Ev, Ev. and Britt Phelan. And just, yeah. I think that's what bonds you though. You go through these times where all of us weren't super happy. We were stuck. We didn't have a car. We had nowhere to go. We had to bike Biking to the grocery store. Yeah. I, of course, went over my handlebars even doing that. But I think it's those experiences that, like you said, the highs are so high and we remember them. Like I remember you coming 11th. I remember when Britt qualified for the Olympics and oh, the man. lows are yeah. low. Sometimes you're like, you need someone to hold you up. And then in the end, oh, yeah. they have you like you were one of the only people who reached out as the ski season started. So meaning that the first slalom race was about to happen in Levy. And you reached out to me and say, Hey, I know the first race is happening. How are you? And then I think it was before Zagreb, which is my favorite race. Again, you're like, Hey, I know Zagreb's coming. How are you? Which just shows one that you like know the feeling and two that mm-hmm. you like that bond. I mean, I don't think I've seen you like hugged you in person since, I don't know, 2015. Yeah. It's been a long, I think, yeah, it's gotta be around that time. I, I, um, went to Killington and watched all those world cups. So maybe it was at one of those. Yeah. It was so much fun being in the, it was a very surreal experience being in the crowd, watching your teammates, but like, just as like a spectator, I was like, Oh my God, I know these people, but it's fun. But it's also like, but I kind of want to be up there, but this is cool. Oh, but why I so am I down badly here? wanted to be in this. <laughs> the Killington started the year after I retired. And I was just like, you know, that's oh, yeah. two hours from Burlington where I went to school for five years. And I was just like, why? God, I would have loved this race. This isn't um, fair. <laughs> but it was super fun. But yeah, it has been a long time. And I think that like, I, I just feel like also the time period that we were teammates was so your late teens, early twenties are kind of a pivotal time in like coming into your adulthood and kind of figuring out who you are and figuring out how you deal with people on your own. And yeah, so I feel like we spent a lot of time together, but it was also formative years that we were spending together. And so, yeah, I just, when I, when, when Levy was happening, I was like, Oh, I know this race. I know that feeling. And I'm sure that like, you know, you must be feeling some emotions around it and wanted to make yeah. sure you're good. So yeah. that was so kind of you. And I think you're right though. Cause it's, Maybe it's because, because I always think back to culture, you know, was it because these girls were amazing or was it because the coaches were amazing at making us be just the right amount of competitive because we were competitive, but somehow it wasn't (laughs) too much that we couldn't be friends. You know, we put it to the side and do photo shoots and do fun things and, and like we loved each other. And then that relationship lasts after or is Do you remember because, the like I'm out of zone t-shirts that we had to get made or that we got made because like all of us biking together, we could never stay within our like zone two heart rate that we were supposed to be in because we were way too competitive. Yeah. It's like, I will be fastest. Oh, I, like, I don't know 80, if I was involved. We would go on those, like, so slow. There was a 80, I think the year actually it was the year in Calgary. I think it was like me, you, Ev and Britt. And we were doing those like 80 kilometer bike rides. And we were like, just trying to, I don't know. I was like supposed to, my heart rate was supposed to be like 145 the whole time. And I'm pretty sure it didn't come below 180, like for those whole rides. 
I, they probably knew it was happening too, but, oh, but then yeah. I look back and I'm like, those rides are cool. Everyone was pulling each other and we learned so much too. And that's, I don't know. Cause that's why I'm like, maybe it's because we spent so many years in those formative years, as you said, mm-hmm. kind of struggling, trying to figure things out, figuring out how to deal with each other, live with other people, be a professional because we had those oh, yeah. kind of Devo years, you know, we didn't just mm-hmm. jump on the team at 22 and all of a sudden it's like perform or else we, you know, we messed up at 18 or 19 or 20 where, you know, you'd make a teammate make a, mad or you'd make a scene oh, somewhere yeah. or you do. I mean, I skied around hairpins and thought there were flushes and two races in yeah. a row that maybe it's, maybe that's those times, those formative years together. Yeah, I think the learning how to be a professional part and and also like the uh, the other thing I always think about is how accountable we were to each other. Like yeah. even just learning to be good roommates. Like yeah. Ev is going Ev might kill me for saying this, but she was the person who taught me how to be a really good teammate because <laughs> I would put my dishes on the counter and she would yell at me within like 5 minutes to put it into the dishwasher. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, Oh, I should probably do that. Yeah. So it was like those sorts of things where we weren't just holding each other accountable on our training. It was like living together. You know, you learned your teammate really well in the summer because if you didn't, you're a bit screwed later on in the season. Or like learning that you didn't like it when I flipped lights on, right? First thing in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes someone else would call you at like MP would say, Hey, Aaron, you just hurt this person's feelings, apologize. And you might not even have realized it, but you kind of have that moderator sometimes or that rock of the team kind of making sure everyone is okay. And everyone is held accountable, which I think is really cool as well. Yeah. And also learning each other's strengths and weaknesses. Like I think that you learned pretty quickly that I never remembered things. So you would always like, you'd be like, Oh, you forgot your bib or, you know, (laughs) I don't remember that about you. Oh, I, I remember that was just like, you always like had the info that I was forgetting. And then it was like, you would like preemptively remember that I would forget that info. (laughs) And so you're always telling me things. I was like, Oh my God, Aaron's here. So make sure everyone's good. No, it's true. Because everyone had a strength and weakness and Ev so neat, so tidy, got every drill on the first try. So good at everything that even like the clapping drills. Okay. How do you do this? Or this ladder drill. Yeah. Watch (laughs) her or ask her. And we were all sharing knowledge, which I think was cool Mm -hmm. or helping each other. So I think it was cool. Well, what I'm excited about and what I find really interesting is that after retirement, I'm leaning even more on my teammates. And as you said, it's a hard thing to retire. And all of a sudden that life is just pulled from you. You know, those doctors, physios, um, support staff is gone. The things you used to have are gone. The life you lived is gone, but all of a sudden, you know, now my teammates, I saw them every day. I slept beside them every night and I haven't seen them in almost a year, which all of a sudden you're kind of, where are my mentors? Where are my friends? Where are my sisters? And it is a shift. Yeah. And I think that it's getting mm, the, un, the understanding and the importance of, of, of recognizing those bonds and those relationships and what they mean to you is, I think it's becoming more apparent. Um, like what I, I would not recommend retiring how I did, which is like <laughs> go somewhere where nobody knows anything about you or the sport that you do. And there's no mountains and people don't ski and like taking yeah. yourself so out of that environment. I actually really like you know, you want, uh, I really, really struggled when I retired because you lose all those people that you're bonded with. And then I went into like an environment where nobody understood 
that background in any way, shape or form. And just kind of was like, so it was like, I was speaking in a completely different language that nobody understood, you know, whenever I brought anything up that wasn't about construction. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think that like the understanding of, of the need for support for people who are retiring, if that makes sense, like it's your identity, it's your family, it's your, it's your hobby. It's your whole life in a lot of ways. And I think that hopefully it's, it's, getting the, the understanding of the, the need for support and maintaining a network is getting better. I totally agree. And I think that as I went through it, as I've gone through things in life, I've realized I've become more empathetic and compassionate. And as I've gone through this, I kind of think back and I'm like, why wasn't I there more? You know, why didn't I reach out more? But some things you don't realize until you've been through it, but that might be an educational piece that's, I mean, but on the other side, um, Britt Richardson, one of our young girls, she retired or she called me within a few months of my retirement, just asking how I was. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe she needs advice or something, but she's like, no, just calling to see how you are. And I was like, Oh, that's so nice to hear because someone realizes it before they've been through it, which is yeah, very mature. But also, yeah. as you said, we're maybe getting a little bit better at vocalizing it or making it normal. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's been a lot of uh, highlighting of people who have retired and struggled. So I don't think that there used to be a lot of talk about athletes retiring in depression or athletes deti- retiring, detiring. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like having them having any struggle, like you usually, uh, an athlete retired and you kind of never heard from them again. Whereas I think there's been a couple like NHL players and football players and stuff, not just skiers, but like people who have some <laughs> media pull <laughs> yeah. talking about, you know, struggling after retirement and and that being like a real eye opener for people who aren't in athletics and even potentially ex athletes who then in hindsight are like, Oh yeah, I really struggled too. That's yeah. thing. And I understand why Tom Brady came back. I do you oh, go yeah, back to what's sure comfortable. Do. I mean, he's, he's a goat, but you go back to what's comfortable. Okay. To shift a little bit, what do you think is the hardest thing that you overcame that you maybe didn't talk about at the moment, but that you overcame? I think there was a couple things. One thing I was thinking of is like overcoming the word no. I think that like a lot of people throughout my ski career tried to tell me, no, you're not good enough. Um, no, you're not going to be on the national team. No, we can't support you. I mean, kind of realizing that that's that person's no and not your no, if that makes sense. And maybe I'm not describing it very well, but like, you know, there was years where after my, ACL. I was back on the national team, but I was inconsistent. And I think I, at the end of the year, needed to be top two in Norham standings. And I ended up third and I straddled on the last day oh, uh, in, in Whistler in the fog. And so yeah. I was like, I think I was like in podium position after the first run or something too. So it was like, I was in a good position to get that spot. And then I straddled and I ended up third, but, and because of that, you know, people are like, Ooh, you're not quite good enough. Like, see you. Thanks for, for trying. And instead of saying no, or like, or instead of saying like, okay, they said, I'm not good enough. Kind of like reevaluating my why as to why I was doing something and, and going forward with the thing that I thought would be, make me successful. And for me, it did end up okay. Like I did make it back onto the national team, but I also think like, even in jobs, like people will go after jobs that are only that they see on job boards. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is something totally different, but like, if you see a job, like a, a company that you want to work at, like, why not just reach out? Like, mm-hmm. where's the, where's, 
the the idea of like not just just because they don't have a posting up doesn't mean you can't apply for that job. Um, and I've gotten like three, two or three jobs that way now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by just like reaching out, being like, "Hey, you're cool. I want to work for you," instead of just being seeing the wall that is like what's on a job board and and not going past that. So. I would say that's something it's, that's not necessarily like a struggle. That part has been a struggle, but it was a learning that I took from something where I was struggling, where, you know, I continually was like being told no on, on to make it on the national team or coaches being like, you're not quite good enough for this. That sort of stuff. Yeah. And to kind of flip into there with school, because as you said, I think you're one of the first, if not first, I think I was the I was definitely the first um, girl, but I think yeah. I was the first actually on the Canadian. I think, so I, think I was the first on the national team in general. Let's just say it. We can say it here, right? It's me. Yeah. It's me. Yeah. And so <laughs> um, many people followed in your footsteps to do NCAA and national team. And you got a lot of pushback. And I'm sure you heard a oh, lot yeah. of those behind the scenes. I and got told by the, our coaches that I was a terrible teammate because I wasn't going on like the after you know, like we'd go to hike. I wanted to go to the like waterfall hike, but I had schoolwork to do. And I got told by our, our coach at the time that I was a terrible teammate because of that. Well, it must <laughs> be was... cool to see so many girls and women on the team now. I mean, the majority last year were doing school mm-hmm. and skiing, but I don't know if that would have been possible if you hadn't stepped up when people told you no. I, I, yeah, I think it was a culture shift for sure. And I think mm-hmm. that they're Right around the same time, uh, whether it was uh, the year after, I think it was like the year after. So, you know, um, we had some men on, the men on our team, Eric Reed, Trevor Philp also go to school. So I, I do think that like we, there was like, there was us pushing us forward, but it was also that like we were able to maintain results. And um, the thing that was really cool is that now it is a path forward for people. And I think that, you know, the, some of the value of going to NCAA is the fact that you do get to race so much. So for me, it actually improved, I think my race experience when I was at world cup, because I had just done like three weekends in a row of racing at a high level. So I think that there was some, and also I think one of the things that happened too was I ended up scoring points at NCAA that I wasn't able to score even in Norams. And I think that that kind of was like, some of the coaches were like, Oh, there's some value here that they hadn't necessarily previously seen. So I think there was some, like there was a, conf- there was a confluence of things that came together to make it so that uh, the, the, the perception was changed. Yeah. Um, and you were at the forefront. Which, I think you should be really proud of that. <laughs> now I am. Yeah. I think <laughs> you <sharing>? should be. <laughs> but uh, you know, it was a really cool experience. And also like my third year, the last year that I raced, or maybe actually my fourth year when I was like out of eligibility, but Laurence Saint-Germain, who's still skiing for Canada, was my teammate and roommate in Vermont. And so like, it was really, it was nice for me because I got the chance to kind of both still hear about what was going on in the national team. Um, but also I just love Laurence with like all my heart um, yeah. and be her roommate and, you know, talk to her and, and kind of, you know, got to be kind of a sounding board I think in the fact that she could come home and like talk about what was going on both on the national team and in NCAA and I had just gone through it and was yeah that's big that you could be there for her and not so sad that you weren't there or so hurt if you hear you know because it's hard like I watch a lot of the or at least the results of a lot of races but it's definitely harder to watch the slalom than it is to watch a downhill or something or harder to watch the women than the men because it is a little bit like you feel like you should be there and you're not there 
and you like you look at the set and you're like, oh, I know that role. <laughs> Here's how I would do it. <laughs> do this better. When in reality, you've been doing it for 14 years. But but do yeah. you think your journey would have been different if you hadn't heard no for school? Uh, like if people were more supportive of you going to school, or if you hadn't been the first, do you think it could have been different? Maybe you wouldn't have retired. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about my retirement, I think there was a couple of things going on. One was that I just got, I was so worn down by the politics, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things where I was on the national team. I was off the national team. I was back on it, but I was like getting a lot of disapproval for the way that I decided to go forward with it, which was to go to school. Um, people didn't think that I was being serious enough. Um, and then I also had, you know, the, uh, a string of injuries that meant that you know, the Olympics were, I think I went to one race beforehand, but realistically the first race back for me was the Olympics from my concussion, mm-hmm. um, is how it felt like to me. I was like, Oh my God, I finally feel like I'm here. Yeah. And then at the Olympics, we, you know, we, we got, they remember they like sat us in that room and we're like, nobody's coming to the next race because <laughs> we're out of funding. Oh, I don't even remember that. Oh it, yeah. They, they like came in, sat us down, like right after the slalom and we're like, Hey, None of the coaches, staff, none of your physios, nobody will be at Norm finals or at these other races, Canadian nationals or any of these other races. Cause we're, we're out of funding for this year. And then while I was at the next race, I compressed a disc in my back on the first run. And I think that was from, you know, I was, because I was concussed and like out, I sat on a couch for like four weeks and all like the little muscles in my back were just not strong. And so mm-hmm. I just wasn't in like the shape that I needed to be in to like, to sustain whatever crash I'd had. And so I was like, had just been injured, was just kind of like, I'm, I'm so tired of fighting is kind of the way that I still love the sport so much, but I was like, my body hurts, my mind hurts, my heart hurts. And yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot that's, that was a question too. I wanted to ask you because skiing's an expensive sport. It's really expensive. And I know your family kind of did everything that they could to make it possible for you, but I don't want to put words in your mouth here. So I'm there. I was not the, let's just put it. I was not the typical person to have made it nearly as far based on the amount of financial support that my family was able to give me is I guess the way that I would put it. And that's part of the reason why it's been so nice to actually give back and like (laughs) design a house for my parents. Cause I was just like, I can finally do this for you. Yeah. I can Um, like help you or I can give back. Exactly. That's a better way of saying it. I, yeah. I mean, so I, it was really, really, and this was actually something I've thought about a lot since was finances played a huge role for me in sport, which is maybe surprising, but like the amount of stress that I was under all the time because of the financial implications of the sport and traveling on the road. Like when I was a teenager traveling around, I remember I had $32 in cash in my hand. And that was like all I had for food for an entire week. And I would get a plain box of pasta. I would get it, you know, an orange, (laughs) I would, you know, like just like super, super, super basics. And I was so proud of the fact that I could live on $32 a week, really. And And that was the reality. It was like, my parents didn't have, they were, they were, my parents were ski instructors. My dad owns a tiny, a gift shop up at a ski resort. I'm going to visit. It's going to be great. It's, it's awesome. I love it. But it wasn't like this, you know, they didn't have $40,000, $20,000 just like sitting around. So yeah. And I felt like actually it, the, I had like a bit of a guard 
almost like a wall in front of me of like being able to even just like participate in, in being again, a good teammate in the fact that like, I didn't have the, like the, the funds to go do the fun things that everybody was doing. And so I was stressed the whole time that we were doing them because I was like, Oh my God, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't have the funds for it. So that was another thing that actually pushed me into going NCAA because I was able to get my education. Now, at the same time, I also took out student loans, but that covered skiing. And so I ended up with $56,000, I think, of student loans, but it was all skiing. No It was way. all skiing. Uh-huh. So that was another reason I retired. I was just like, I can't financially. I'm so stressed about the financial situation that I've put myself in by pursuing this career. Yeah. Um, because I wasn't able to do, because I was doing NCAA, I wasn't able to take, you know, sponsorship, et cetera. But the sponsorship that I would have been able to take or the prize money that I was, you know, had to say no to was still less than the value of the scholarship that I was getting. So I was still like getting out on top. But like, um, yeah, even like I think about, too, there's a real um, culture of like buying beer for your for your ski tech. Yeah. That sort of thing. Or like buying like Christmas gifts for your ski tech. And there'd be times where like somebody'd be like, hey, I want to buy this really expensive sweater. We want to buy this really expensive sweater to show how much we appreciate our ski tech. And it would be like more than my budget that I had for the whole month <laughs> or yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. And I like had to, I had to be the like terrible teammate who was like, no, I can't. Or like the unfortunate, like weak link as far as the, the ski techs skier who was like, I didn't get you beer this week. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, and all those little things, I just felt like I just, it ended up making me feel like an asshole the whole time, which sucked. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I, people don't I realize understand. now. Yeah. And I realize it now, like now that, it, you know, I've been working for a while and actually I'm, everything's good now, but I'm totally fine. <laughs> but like it, now I'm just like, holy, I was like very financially that, that actually was a burden that like impacted the, the relationships that I was able to have as a ski racer, which was sad. It's sad. And it's sad because it's, how many people is it making leave the sport? You know, we talk about mm, girls in sport. Huge. Why are they leaving? How many does it keep from getting into the sport? And how mm-hmm. many are in it living this very stressful life that are some of Canada's best that can't afford it or feel like jerks because they can't be involved in things or have to sit out or find these very mm-hmm. different methods to get well, there? Well, there's also that- like one time where I was on a camp and our coaches pulled us aside and said, unless your parents pay this portion of team fees by tomorrow, (laughs) it was like a weekend. (laughs) You can't continue with this camp. Yeah. And so, you know, there's like, there's just so many different ways that it becomes a burden. And I'm so thankful. Like I wouldn't have been able to go to the Olympics had it not been for like the amount of fundraising that was done in my community. And so like, there's a couple things, like the amount of support that you receive as a athlete can be, tremendous it can also be overwhelming in the fact that like you know you have a whole community supporting you and that is such a wonderful thing but it's also kind of a burden (laughs) yes in like you're just like I'm performing for this community so there's like some really interesting aspects of um the finances um both when you're successful and when you're not and like we have teammates or former teammates who've retired and have kids and I've heard them say several times like oh we'll leave them in ski racing just for a couple of years so that they get the basics of it. But then we're going to pull them out. It's way too expensive. And we know what that holds afterwards, that sort of thing. And I think that's real, really sad. Yeah, me too. And I don't have an answer, but it's really sad. No. Mm-hmm. And I think that like there's skiing is such one of, one of those wonderful sports that you can do your entire life. And yeah. so the question is, 
where does the competitive, you know, what is the value of being competitive in the sport? And what is the value of being somebody who does take it all the way? And I think that there's a ton of benefit and not just for yourself, but also for the people around you and like the people you can inspire with your story having gone that far. But also, you know, as an individual, there's incredible benefit in the learnings that you can take from, you know, getting the chance to travel the world and have such strong bonds with really wonderful people who that you're going to have the experience of, of, of being close to for the rest of your life. And, and like, there's some really wonderful things that come out of staying in sport. Yeah. Um, and it's just figuring out the best way to do it. Yeah, I agree. And I'm tuning my skis for the pro tour with all my old tuning stuff from when I was 17, but the prices are still on some of it. And my dad used to say like, do not do this with this because it cost me $30 yeah. or be careful. Like don't use too much wax. Just use a little bit because fluoro is really expensive and I'm reliving it as I'm tuning my skis. And I was like, he was so right though, because it's kind of, my family wasn't in, we weren't, we were kind of in the middle of the situation with skiing. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't as pinched, but my, my parents sacrificed a lot. And I understand, because at the time as a kid, you're like, oh, come on, dad, everyone else is using more wax or I was taught like this. Mm-hmm. But then now looking at it, I'm like, that makes total sense because he was just trying to figure out a way to make ends meet. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we saved every penny and that included how much wax I was putting on my skis. Yeah. I remember, uh, I got sponsored really young. Well, I think I was lucky in the fact that I was, you know, performing pretty well as like a 12 year old, but like. Also, that was the opportunity that I had to get a second pair of skis. And like, if I hadn't got that sponsorship, I wasn't going to get a second pair of skis. Or like, I didn't have a full tuning kit. I still don't have a full tuning kit. <laughs> I never did. Um, I never, I've never owned vices in my life. And I remember going to World Juniors and one of the Ontario coaches was like, you wouldn't believe how terribly tuned her skis were. <laughs> wow, I like, do them on like, the floor. <laughs> yeah, I do them on the floor. So, or like I would do them at the club cabin or I'd borrow somebody's vases or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, there's just so many funny little instances. I had to buy my own, my own boots for the first time uh, a couple of years ago. And I was like, un- I was amazed by how expensive they were. And I ended up waiting until they were like on super discount in the summer. I was like, how do people do this? Yeah. How do people do this sport? Yeah. Ugh, craziness. I totally agree. And then if we talk about the Olympics and talk about the community, we were straddle buddies in Sochi. Yep. Yep. And, um, straddling for people listening means that both skis have to go around the gate. And one of our skis went on the inside of the gate, probably off by probably if we were an inch the other yeah. direction, we would have continued and had a very different experience. Um, unfortunately it's, it did not finish. So it's kind of sad and it didn't live up. I, I was lucky cause I got to race the GS that race that those Olympics. So I got that extra race. Um, I really remember going to the Canada house with you and your brother and enjoying that. So I know it wasn't the best experience, but as you talked about community and funding, because it does take a village to bring an athlete to the Olympic games, whether it's support or funding or, kind words or, you know, buying used gear, because as you said, ski boots are expensive. So when you're young, you kind of take whatever you can get. But I also found in my career that I could come home and feel such shame for not performing to expectations. Like you can't hide Mm -hmm. from it. You go home and you just went to the Olympics. And of course people want to talk about it. And if you say you went to the Olympics, the first question is, did you podium? Oh God, I know. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, you know, there was so much shame. 
Oh, so much. I don't think I've, so I have a couple of the, I, the Olympics, one of those things, like, I think it's one of those, you'll, you process it for years afterwards. Yeah. It's two weeks, but you process it for years. And I remember, I've never seen so many unhappy athletes because yeah. you were either hoping that you got, if, even if you were somebody like myself, who, you know, like on your good day was top 15, you're like, there's that moment. There's, you could be that underdog who, who gets on the podium. Yeah. There's those underdog stories. We all see them. We all love them. And it could be me. Yeah. And so even if like every other race of the year, you're top 15, if you're not podiuming at the Olympics, you're like, Oh God, like I didn't perform. And that kind of struck me like while I was there, I remember being like, wow, yeah. Um, you know, like I, I should be, you know, you should be happy with a 10th. Like you're usually like 15th, but this time you're 10th. Like that's a great result. But you know, that sort of, that sort of thing where people were just like, they, they, they want to have that, that optimal experience at the right moment at the right time, et cetera. So that was something, but yeah, I had the same experience when I went home of everybody getting up at 4am to watch me and me not performing. And then almost it was like, it became like a collective trauma of sorts where everybody wanted to tell me their experience of how sad they were that they saw me fail on television. And so that was, that really, that's, I mean, it's tough. And I mean, I think one of the first things that went through my head when I straddled was like, I'm going to have to explain what straddling is for the rest of my life. I'm never going to be able to just like walk away from a conversation about the Olympics without also having a conversation about what straddling is. Like, I don't have, I don't have that nice, simple, Oh, how'd you do at the Olympics? Oh, I came 10th. Oh, cool. You know, that's an easy answer. No, instead I have to say I crashed, but that's not true. I didn't crash. Yeah. I didn't finish, but that's also not a hundred. It's not the right description because you aren't allowed to finish. It's not like it's, it's a weird middle ground. Yeah which is such an interesting thing to think of. And you're right. It's a collective trauma and people want to share in that with you. But I think people Mm -hmm. sometimes like right now, I'm having a lot of people ask why I retired. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're just curious. They're kind humans. Sometimes I answer it well. Sometimes I find myself get really emotional about it because it's a really hard question and people are just trying to find, but it's, it's a hard one. It's a, it's never a simple answer in like in different moments it can be experienced in different ways. So it's like a multifactorial answer. And it's kind of like, which version of myself would you like to me to answer with? (laughs) Like there's no one word response that you can give that would nearly convey the emotion that you're actually feeling on the inside at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And what went through it and how many hours and how many weeks and months you've thought about this and years and finances Mm -hmm. and injury and happiness and missing funerals, missing like that sort of thing. I remember like we were at Noram finals and I missed my Opus funeral and got written out of the obituary, but my whole family was like, don't come home because we know that this NCAA, you know, we know this, not NCAA, we know this Noram final might get you to the Olympics. And that was like at Sugar Bowl. And I think that is one of the races that helped me win the the Noram title that year. But what sacrifice I missed you know, something that was like really important to everybody else. Yeah. It's yeah, all sorts it, of experience. Exactly. And it kind of hit home too, for me, when, you know, my family had that conversation with me, like if, if something happens to us, don't come home. I'm like, no, of course I'm coming home. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're like, how did this become that big? Yeah. And you kind of second guess or think, and sometimes it is that big. And and sometimes that's what the person would have wanted, but mm-hmm. it is after years and years of doing that, you're kind of, 
you disconnected priority. Yeah. Yeah. You're just disconnected. So it's like, it's a really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Like it's, it's, it becomes the, when is my life more important than the collective life of this group of people that I am a part of? That was a really interesting moment to, to, to kind of navigate and be, and also become aware of, I don't think that you're aware of that as like a 19, 20, 21 year old, but as you go a little further, sometimes it becomes much more apparent. Yeah. I think that's, what's cool too, about getting older. You have these experiences and as you're talking, I remembered those Norams, you know, I remembered you missing your opus and we kind of learn, you live it. It's really true. You live and you learn. Britt Phelan says you live and you live and you just keep making <laughs> mistakes, same mistake over and over again, which is sometimes true. But also I think we can look back and think about how hurtful something was and make sure someone else doesn't feel that in the future. Like you, you could reach out to me for the first Psalms coming up. And then I know that I'm going to do the same when the next person on our team retires, because you did that for me. So I think we just, you, we kind of live and learn and we can look back years and years later on these, you know, the Olympics is two weeks, like you said, and this career, it's not actually that long in the grand scheme of things. Short, but fruitful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as I was saying to someone today, you know, those teammates have got you, you know, mm-hmm. like I know those teammates that we sweat and bled and swore and struggled, some of us financially or felt like jerks sometimes, or, you know, argued about silly things like flipping on the light or whatever, that (laughs) they got you and we got you forever. And I think that that's something super special. And I mean, you touched on it too, the lessons of sport, even just learning that no sometimes means not right now. Sometimes means it's never done before. Keep trying. Sometimes means like shoot your shot, see what happens. And you heard no, and you paved the way for lots of other people. And so I think that sport teaches us so much. I think it does teach us a bit about Instagram as well, because for me, it really bothers (laughs) me that Instagram is this like highlight reel and we don't see, I don't know. Is there a time in your life that you struggled? No one knew you were struggling. You struggled and you overcame that, but you know, no one would have known. Oh, several times. But I think one thing that comes to mind is that that year that I was talking about in Boston, just like the recognizing very slowly that I didn't have any clue who I was anymore, what my identity was, and nobody around me was recognizing that I was struggling in any way because I was just kind of pushing forward. And realizing like in March, after like nine months of just kind of going through it, that I was like, oh no, I'm actually really depressed right now. Like I actually need to change some things. Like this, I can't, I'm actually very depressed. So that would be one. I think that was one where I realized it was me who was realizing things that nobody around me was recognizing. I would say that was one. Um, mm-hmm. Also, maybe as a teenager, like just for me, I felt when I was a teenager, particularly very, very nerdy for somebody who was a skier. I've always been somebody who's been very, what's the description here? <laughs> nerd. I've been a nerd my entire life. And I, it wasn't something that was necessarily understood by the people around me at the or time. Accepted. Yeah. Or accepted. And so, you know, that was, that was always a bit of a struggle too. It didn't really matter where I was. It was, you know, it was nerdy when I was a skier and I was a jock when I was at school. And so there was nobody who was like on the same wavelength of me, no matter where I was. So that was a struggle. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And if you portray things, then I don't know, it's just so different. It's, it's interesting to think about like that too, because I was kind of the same at school as, you know, a jock or whatever, but 
And then when I was on the ski team, I didn't fit in at all. When I was on the Ontario team, not sure why it was. I found my belonging when I reached the national team. I don't think I went through it as much as other people did who were on the national team. Cause a lot of us felt the same way that we just didn't really fit in until we, we found this group on the national team. Maybe we were, I don't know, saying no to a lot of things that other people were saying yes to, or studying saying a, lot. No to a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> that I don't know what it is. And then I kind of found my place, but that's something that I think it's really brave that you shared what you went through when you retired and what happened in Boston and then how you learned from it to make sure that I was okay as well. Because, you know, right now my life, I'm, I'm adventuring and I'm going, and we're about to leave on this bus adventure. I've, we've probably left by the time this interview comes out, but you know, behind the scenes, it's the same thing, trying to redefine who I am and, prioritize things differently. And where do my priorities sit? What do I say yes to? How do I, you know, sometimes I reread an email six times to make sure it's coming off properly because, you know, I don't know my voice anymore because I'm, I'm asking for different things or talking about different things. And so it's like, and a question for you, Erin, is like, do you find that you have found a way to express your self-worth in a way that doesn't have to do deal with skiing? No, I should have thought about it more, but I'm going with my first instinct. A lot of what I'm doing is with skiing. And so, and it's beautiful, I think, because like that love of skiing never died. You know, I never took a break from it. It never died. Mm -hmm. But I am also so excited to discover things that don't relate to skiing. I think the only thing that wouldn't relate at the moment is the bus. Like I am so proud yeah. of that bus. Oh, Lenny's done a I, lot I've of loved, it. I have to say, I really, really love, I have loved seeing how much you love that bus. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> like Lenny it's come does, through and like the things. Yeah. It's come yeah, through. I do love it. And Lenny has done most of the work because he's a genius at that. But I, he always says, Oh, Aaron designed it and I just built it for her, which is cute, but it makes me really that is very cute. proud because it's something that is totally different. And I think that that is something I, there's, I have a few regrets and I think it's okay to have regrets. You know how people like regret nothing. Mm -hmm. I regret not having more outside of skiing. You Mm -hmm. know, my, my ski life was so beautiful and deep. My friends were so amazing. How hard I worked was all of us worked. You worked too. It was so incredible, but I didn't have that you know, I didn't have that school experience. I didn't have that. So then when I retired, all of a sudden it's like, okay, now is finding this different Aaron where you find value outside of sport, but maybe it didn't have to be so black and white. If I had a richer life that wasn't just. It's so hard sport. to do. I mean, I think the, the only reason I ended up having interest, like if you had asked me in high school, what I was going to be, my answer would have told you, I would have said, I'm going to be a ski racer. That was the answer. And it, the, I think that I had an interesting experience of tearing my knee at a pivotal time in the mm. fact that like at 19, I had an, a year suddenly where I was like, I can't ski. I might never run again. Like, mm. um, you know, and so I had to like do that kind of processing, which kind of did in the end drive me towards school. But I don't think that there's ever a reason why like you know, like actually, I don't know. I would say, like, when I think of you, I think of somebody who loves animals. Yeah, it's an obsession, like, big it's time. Weird. You've always loved animals. <laughs> um, so I think that, like, it's one of those things where it's a really hard balance to. I mean, particularly with animals, have a ski career, and then also you had always talked about wanting to be a vet. 
and that sort of thing. Like those are, those are things that are not, those are kind of not mutually exclusive. Like you can't really do those at the same time. And, and the idea of like, yeah, figuring out even as a skier, how to cultivate those things. I think that people Mm -hmm. are doing it better now with school and, and like, it's just a really interesting problem. Actually. I think that every athlete has to kind of face when you get to a certain level of like, how do I stay well, well read, well rounded, well, blah, 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 you know, but also when you're at the top level of your sport and for you, you were at the top level for so long, like you kind of have to have it be your all too. So it's, um, I don't think that there's a right answer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we're, exactly. I think we're taught too, that this is what you do. This is how much you give. If you're not giving that you're not doing enough or you're lazy, you know, cause that was my thing. Like I tried my best, like all the time I tried my best and I would do everything. But I mean, some of my best races were when I couldn't try my best. Like I'd be injured and I could hardly walk. And then I would go and have a great result because all of a sudden I think the pressure was off that, you know, I hadn't tried my best. So I didn't actually, the expectation was not to perform because, you know, I couldn't even walk to dinner that I think sometimes it's, uh, you know, we get caught in the cycle of thinking that to be a perfect athlete, to be a great athlete, we have to be perfect. And I have, I think I have something to add to that, which is like, I remember seeing, it was almost like we had a couple, we had a teammate who was struggling. And I remember the more that she seemed to focus on skiing, it was like the harder she struggled Mm -hmm. um, in that year. And I almost, and I think it was one of the years that I was actually in school. And what I was finding about school at the time was that like, for me, having both was really nice because it allowed me to have that switch focus where when I was having a bad day on the slopes, I could have a good day doing calculus, which sounds terrible, but it's no, true. But that, I think it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like speaking, you were speaking exactly to it. Like the fact that I could have this, this other thing that I was having success at, even on a day when my training was bad, or I could go and study. And then I was so excited to train that it was so much more enjoyable for me to be on the hill than it had previously been because suddenly I had, um, much more of an appreciation for those, mo- those, those moments. Cause they were more fleeting, not fleeting, but they were not as they were more precious somehow. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that's exactly what you're kind of speaking to. And it was really, I remember that specifically, I think um, we were in Europe and this teammate who w- was just like having a really hard, tough time. And it was like, I, I just remember watching it going, I just wish she could switch her focus just for even a moment, just, yeah. just to think about something else. And I think it would be better. Yeah. And it's like a finger puppet. That's what I had Tim on one of the last episodes. And it's like, just trying to pull it apart as hard as you can. And it gets worse because you're trying so hard that sometimes if you shift focus, then you can find it, but it is hard to shift focus when you're, it is your be all end all. So I I do think Mm -hmm. that school is an interesting tactic to be an excellent ski racer. For me, you know, what it has to do with is how you are in the start gate. So for me, if I was in the start gate and I thought that my world was going to fall apart if this run was not successful. It put so much pressure on me that I didn't perform. Whereas if I was in the start gate thinking, okay, no matter well, I had two things. One was no matter what, I'll be fine. And that kind of that saying in the start gate allowed me to remove the portion of my brain that felt a lot of fear about getting injured or taking the risk. And then the second part of it, it was no matter what, I'll be fine. As in like, I have this other thing that no matter what the result of this race is, I'm going to be fine. And because I have that, 
I can relax and enjoy and have freedom. And, and that took the tension out of it. And because then I had less tension, I feel like I was able to perform better. Yeah. Yeah. I time. totally agree. I totally agree. I agree. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time, but it was amazing talking to you and let's make plants meet up in the spring. Let's go ski touring. Let's go do what we love. In the meantime, I'm going to go figure out who I am without skiing. <laughs> I actually challenge from Ellie. How do I find value outside of skiing? That's my challenge. Yeah. Okay. Do you have and another challenge it. for me? <laughs> come visit me in BC. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, no, cause I get there after you, but maybe I'll oh, go to yeah. California. Yeah, please do. Okay. This has been wonderful, Aaron. Thank you so yeah, much for um, thank you so much. letting me come on. And I'm so excited to reconnect. I can't believe it's been so long, but this spring, that's when it's happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bye everyone. Thank you for listening to Unspoken Bravery. My goal with this podcast is to connect with you through real life experiences. So I would love to hear from you. A hello, feedback, future ideas, you name it. You can reach me on my Instagram account at Aaron Milzinski or head to my website, AaronMilzinski.com. If you like the podcast, please share, review and subscribe. I hope to see you back here to uncover your own hidden superhero.